couple months ago, a big event happened, hit all the media, hit our TVs. Um, some people got up a strange hour to watch something. It was the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Uh, my father, who's 93, got up and watched it and and uh, sat sideways on a chair so he could see the TV because his macular degeneration ended up with back problems so he could see the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. How many of you watched that wedding? How many of you were kind of fascinated to know what's going on? I didn't watch the whole thing, but I saw parts of it later. It was pretty interesting. It was a you know, storybook wedding of royalty. Prince Henry Charles Albert David of Wales wed somebody who's as common as us. And it was quite a storybook romance and marriage now. It's fascinating to many. And I wonder how many of you were captivated by the lifestyles of royalty and, and other rich and famous people. There's something intriguing about their lives, about the extravagance of their lifestyles. And I know Jane and I enjoy watching Downton Abbey. Any other Downton Abbey fans in the group? Even though Lord and Lady Grantham are far down the royal line from the actual Queen of England, it's still just fun to see people living in a castle and having all these servants. And, and I wonder, by chance, is there anyone here today of royal blood? Anybody of the royal line? We might recognize you. Yes. Okay. There's a few people that have been. Okay, good. I'm glad you know that. That's amazing. Should, should we provide a special seat for you guys? Okay, yeah. We don't have any thrones up here or anything. Many of us are royalty. Most of us probably in this room today are royalty, aren't we? Because we're sons and daughters of God. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Many of us are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And we've been adopted into God's royal family. And uh, we are royalty. Amen? Amen. So uh, just remember that when somebody treats you badly, hey, I'm, I'm royalty, so be careful. <laughs> Our story today begins uh, with royalty, with a nobleman, a person uh, uh, of royal position. And it's in John chapter 4, so if you'll turn over to John chapter 4, starting with verse 46. This person uh, has a special place in his town, in his his culture, his society, and uh, he enters into the storyline of Jesus now. We're going to look at his personal encounter with Jesus. John 4, starting with verse 46. Once more, he, that is Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who is close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the man realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. 
This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. (laughs) Jesus returned to Cana, where his first miracle occurred. It was the changing of water into wine. You may remember he was invited to a wedding along with his disciples, and you know, partway through the wedding, they ran out of wine, and his mother came to the servants and to Jesus and said, you know, do something about this. And uh, Jesus said, you know, this is not my time, this is whatever, and kind of put it off. And, and she just said, do whatever he tells you to do. And so he told them to draw out the water, and it changed into wine, better wine than they had had the first go around. This happened in Cana, and now he's returned to the same town. Now, this is a pretty small town. People know what's going on. They know that Jesus has returned, and so all the this, the grapevine is carrying the news. They all know that Jesus has returned, and they're looking for other miracles. Meanwhile, about 20 miles away in Capernaum, there's this rich man, this nobleman who has a sick child. He's a royal official. He's, he's a nobleman. What might this man have been? What was his position? Was he the mayor? Was he a city councilman? Well, they didn't have such things. He was an ambassador chosen and installed, titled by the king. Some think he was even a relative of the king, actually by birth having royalty. Nobleman literally means he was a king's man. And this man from Capernaum, a man of a different class than nearly everyone else, had rank and position and power. In a word, he had clout. He, he had power. Uh, and he could order people around. He could get things done. And most everybody envied him. They wish they could be him. They wish they could have his power and influence. But you know what? Pain and influence and tragedy is no respecter of persons. <laughs> you know, you can, you can be the wealthiest person. You can still get sick. Or you can have your child get sick. Or you could suffer some other kind of tragedy, even with all the preventative measures that you've taken through your wealth, all through the, the shielding and all of the, the barriers that you have to keep yourself safe, You can't stop certain things. No matter how much power this man had, he was powerless in the face of this illness that was taking his son's life. And so now he's willing to do whatever it takes to save his boy's life. But he didn't actually have the power to do so. He felt helpless. He was afraid. He was at the end of his rope. And so God brought this nobleman to a crisis of faith. I want you to think about that. He brought him to kind of a come-to-Jesus moment in his life, (laughs) literally. And at just the right time, God got his attention through this pain at his time of extremity. You know, when, when he didn't know what else to do, God spoke to his heart. His heart was yearning for hope. And in this crisis of faith, the most critical moment of his life, He meets Jesus. He goes intentionally to Jesus with a plan to save his son's life through Jesus when he couldn't save it himself. Now, I wonder this morning, have you ever had a crisis of faith? You ever had a time in your life, maybe several times in your life, when this moment strikes, the most difficult moment of your life, perhaps? It's not fun. It's not easy. But it can be one of the most wonderful, most helpful moments of our life to change the way that we see things, the way that we think, the way that we live. We may, in fact, face several crises of faith in our lifetime. Each time our circumstances change for the worse, 
we have another time when our faith is being tested. What will we do with this situation? What will we do about this circumstance? What will we do about this tragedy, about this illness, about this loss that we're experiencing? Do we turn to ourselves or to some other person, or do we turn to God? Crisis points of faith kind of strip away our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency. They cause us to humble ourselves and to seek help from someone who is greater than ourselves, who is God. So how did this rich, powerful, important, mighty nobleman come to Christ? He came on his knees, just like everyone else has to, because he realized he didn't have the power to change things. He came on his knees begging for Jesus' help, and he's the pic- uh, kind of a perfect picture of someone who is getting their heart right with God. He's no longer full of himself, no longer a nobleman, you know, in control of things, can do whatever he wants, but somebody who's humbling his heart and asking Jesus to do what only Jesus could do. So what's so powerful about a crisis of faith like this? Remember C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone. He knew by personal experience that through pain, God speaks more powerfully than he does through happy and good times, through the mountain experiences of, of life. He was watching his beloved wife die of cancer, and God spoke powerfully to his heart during that painful experience. And so God's megaphone, pain, gets our attention, gets us to listen to God. It isn't necessarily that he caused that pain, but he takes the pains that we have in life, and he uses them to get us to listen more closely than we did before. Now, maybe we could look at it a different way. Some people say that God's pain is like God's scalpel. You know, in the hands of the skilled surgeon, uh, removing layers of selfishness and pride and and anything else that keeps us from really knowing him, loving him, living for him. And this man's heart is wounded. His heart is breaking for his son. He's he's feeling more and more hopeless because he doesn't know what to do about him. He's about ready to die. And at that moment, he encounters Jesus. He begged Jesus for help. He begged him to save his son. He was not used to begging, but he was glad to be begging, knowing that here was someone who could actually do something because his son was knocking at death's door. So when the nobleman heard that Jesus had come to Galilee, he ran looking for Jesus. He had to travel at least 20 miles to get to Jesus, perhaps on foot. His plan was to compel Jesus to come back to his house to lay his hands upon his son and heal him. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet, begging for his son's life. But then Jesus answered him. If you have your Bible open soon, still it's like, why did Jesus answer him like that? I mean, here's a man at his point of, you know, the greatest pain of his life. And Jesus answers him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. (laughs) Sounds really harsh. Sounds uncaring, callous. It seems to be a rebuke. Here the man, desperate for help, sees Jesus just kind of put out. Like, people are always asking for something, always asking for a handout, always asking for help. I think if I were him, I would have been offended. I would have been surprised that Jesus was more callous than I ever imagined he could be. But notice what Jesus said. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And we don't see it in English, but in the Greek language, there's a difference between you, plural, and you, singular. 
And Jesus says, you people, you all, constantly are looking for signs and wonders and miracles. You'll never believe. It's not the answer there. Unless you just keep seeing more and more, you will never believe. Jesus' comment, I think, was not meant just for this nobleman, or maybe not for him even at all, but for everyone around him. And I think it's a comment that's kind of maybe frustration, maybe you know, impatience, that people are, are longing for signs when what he wants is the relationship that he came to give us with himself. Jesus was asking for the nobleman and maybe the other people in the crowd just to examine their hearts. Why, why are you clamoring for my attention, clamoring for my blessing all the time? Why are you asking for things from me? So I want to ask this, why do people seek signs and wonders? You know, we have it still today. Some people sincerely want God to, you know, to, to show up and confirm that this is his message, and that's good, that's the whole point. Jesus gave signs so that he could give validity to the message that he was giving to the people. And some people get that, but most people kind of miss that. Others see signs and wonders or miracles for the wrong reasons, actually for several wrong reasons. Some seek signs and wonders because they're curious thrill seekers. You know, I just want to see another show. And they've advertised Jesus is coming to town, so I'm going to be there because who knows what he might do this time. And I want to be the one that witnessed that. And so that's all it is, is curiosity, thrill seeking. Some seek signs, and I think this is probably the largest group, for selfish reasons. They want to benefit directly from what Jesus could do for them. It could be healing, it could be material blessings, it could be greater happiness. You may remember the story of those people who got fed one day, and then they followed Jesus clear across the lake so that he could be, they could be fed the next day. They thought, here's free lunch. Jesus is free lunch to us. And then there are some who don't look at signs and wonders as they should, like the Pharisees, who asked Jesus for signs because their hearts were already hardened toward the truth. They were just putting Jesus to a test, expecting him to do greater and greater signs, supposedly so they could believe, but really trying to make him look bad or, or make him fail. No matter what he did, their hearts were not touched. They would never repent of their sins. They would never believe in him. And some people just, you know, throw that out there as a test to God. And Scripture says we're not supposed to test God. To many people today, let's admit it, many people look at Jesus as a spiritual ATM. You know, I'll go to Jesus and, you know, I put in the right code, I'll say the right thing, and out spits a blessing, out spits an answer. He's their go-to person when they have a problem, when they have a need. He's their problem solver. He's their fixer. Otherwise, Jesus is ignored. Jesus, I have no time for you until I'm in problems, until I have debt, until I have a crisis. Jesus uses that crisis to bring them back if they'll listen. But a lot of people, that's all it is. If I get a problem, I go to Jesus. I pray. I don't pray any other time, but when there's a problem, I pray. They don't actually want a relationship with Jesus. They certainly aren't looking to surrender their lives and their hearts to him. And, and could it be that we, even as, as believers, that consider ourselves strong in the faith, sometimes make this same mistake? Is this a trap that we could have fallen into? Do we confuse what Jesus can do for us with who Jesus is for us? 
and the relationship that he wants with us? Do we make our faith all about us rather than about him? You know, are we only in church because of the benefits we receive? We feel good. We like this. We like to hear the music. We like to, you know, receive a message or, or get some benefit from this. But there's really no relationship to Jesus beyond that. It could be a great mistake if that's how we look at things. So Jesus rebuked the people at the scene. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And he probably stopped people cold. They probably got a little miffed that Jesus was correcting them for their selfishness. But notice the nobleman. I'm not sure he even heard it. <laughs> He's not deterred. He's not stopped. He's not put off. He just comes right back at him. And he says, please, Lord, come down to my house before my son dies. He just couldn't have any other message. That was his drive. And Jesus very unexpectedly said, go home. Your son will live. Go home. I don't have to go. I don't have to lay my hands on him. I can speak the word from right here, and your son will live. Just go home. It's good. I've, I've said it. Don't I need to have a day to finish up things, and I'll go with you? I don't need to, you know, have uh, some appointment with you. I don't need to travel the 20 miles because those are no problem. I will speak the word, and your son will be healed. In other words, trust me. Go and find it to be true. And in so doing, I think Jesus put the burden of faith back on the nobleman. He said, okay, I've done what I'm going to do. Do you believe this? Do you believe what I've said? Will you go home and find it to be true? How would you have reacted? What if you were the father and you had come begging for the life of your son and you realize your only hope is Jesus and Jesus basically is refusing to go with you? Jesus is saying, I don't need to go. I'm not going to go. I'm just going to speak the word from here. I'm going to say that your son will live. Now go home and your son will be there for you. What would you do? Would you still insist that Jesus go with you? Would you say, I'm not moving from this spot until you agree to go? Or would you take Jesus at his word? Because that's what the Bible says. The man took Jesus at his word and departed for home. And I'm amazed by that, aren't you? I'm amazed that this man who had no experience of Jesus before this, this is his first encounter with Jesus, this man who is used to being in control, who is now out of control, this man who is hopeless except for this one little shred of hope that he has in Jesus, hangs on to that shred and says, okay, you said it, I'm going home. I'm counting on the fact that what you said will be true. As he traveled home, he's met by his servants who confirmed that his son was suddenly getting better. When he asked when his son took a turn for the better, the servant said it was the exact hour when Jesus had said to him, go home, your son will live. And once he arrives home, his whole family, it says, put their faith in Jesus. They began believing in Jesus. The whole family, the whole household, maybe his, his family as well as his servants, all of them start following Jesus and put their faith in Jesus. John commented in his gospel that this was the second of two signs that Jesus had done so far in his ministry. Even though he had performed many healings, we know back in Jerusalem at the feast, he had healed many people. But John is highlighting a couple of signs. In fact, in the gospel, he highlights seven signs of Jesus. You can look down through this. We're going to actually look at a couple more of those in future sermons. 
But he highlights the signs where the point of Jesus' miracle, of Jesus' sign, is to bring people to faith. That's the whole reason. It's not just to heal them. It's not just to take care of today's problems, but to bring them to faith and a relationship with him. And so at the wedding in Cana, it says when he turned the water into wine, what was the result? The disciples put their faith in him. And when the nobleman's son is healed, it says that the nobleman and his entire household put their faith in him. And so you'll see in, the, see in these seven signs of the Gospel of John from the life of Jesus that this is the point. A relationship is spawned. A relationship is begun. A relationship will not just, not just to heal somebody's body or take care of today's problem, but to change eternity for them. Jesus has spoken many promises to us. And we know uh, that he's already taken care of our worst problems. He's already taken care of sin and death and hell. What else is a greater problem than that? And so we ask ourselves today, do we trust him? Do we trust his words? Do we believe what he said? And when the Lord says, trust me, do we believe he will do what he has promised he will do? Nobleman brought his need to Jesus. He believed the Lord's word. He returned home. And after he got home, he found everything was just as Jesus had said, that his son was healed. And he put his faith in Jesus, continued to believe in Jesus from that day on. The nobleman's hope became reality by the power of Jesus. And his entire household ended up following Jesus. He came to a crisis of faith. Jesus met him at that crisis when he humbled himself and he sought God's help. And then Jesus simply spoke words of healing. And the man went home believing that what Jesus had said was true. This is how we're supposed to respond to Jesus as well. This is the example for us. When we can finally stop being so full of ourselves and what we can do and what we can think and what we can control or how we can fix every situation, then we finally are broken down. We reach a crisis of faith and we run to Jesus. And when we realize we can't do anything, we can't buy our way out, we can't work our way out, when we realize it doesn't matter how much money we have or how influential we may be or even how religious we are, we come to the feet of Jesus and we say, Lord, help me. Lord, save me. That's where the crisis of faith leads. And you can either come the feet of Jesus trusting him, or you can trust in your own ability. I want you to know that only one of those is going to lead to eternal life. You've got to stop trusting in yourself. I've got to stop trusting in myself. You know, I always think I have a better plan than God, and I, I struggle with that. I want to do it my way. I want to do it the way that I think looks good and, and will work out well. But the crisis of faith brings you to your knees, and you realize that only God has the answers. And I need somebody bigger and more powerful than I am to meet my needs. So do you. And when this nobleman did this, Jesus healed his son and brought faith to him and his family. Have you ever encountered Jesus personally, one-on-one? -on -one? You know, you, you may consider yourself a religious person. You may consider yourself a, a believer, even a Christian 
But you know, a lot of times people think of Christianity more as of a religion than anything. But Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not just another religion. It's not just one of many to choose from. It's about a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus who alone can bring to us what we're looking for. My preacher friend, Jeff Streit, tells how his daddy was this big, strong, macho man. His daddy was a man's man, he said. His daddy was as smart and as strong as as capable as any man could ever be. His, his daddy went to church, but he had kind of an arrangement with God, he called it. He would sit over here and God would be over there. God was always at somewhat of a distance there. He would go to church, but he didn't want God getting too close and really changing anything in his life. And that's the way his daddy liked it. He, he could see that even as his son growing up. He'd go to church, but not because he loved God or because he needed God. It was just something he did to be a good you know, member of the community or, or whatever, to, to be a good example. So he's kind of just going through the motions of believing in God. But he said one day that all changed. Nobody knows exactly why. He talked to his mom, but she didn't know exactly what happened. But on that day, whether it was one of the hymns or a prayer or the sermon, something touched his father's heart that had never touched his heart before. And at invitation time, his dad got up and he went down the aisle and gave his life to Christ. His mom said that on the way home, the two of them were in the car, and suddenly he pulled to the side of the road, and he started weeping. And he wept, and he wept, and he wept. She had never even seen him cry before. And when he got home, from that day on, his father never drank, never cursed again. It changed his life. Jesus changed his life. He had had this come-to-Jesus moment, and his heart was never the same again. From that time on, his dad loved Jesus. Max Licato tells about a preacher who went to visit a dying man in the hospital. And as the preacher entered the room, he noticed there was an empty chair next to the bed. And he asked the man if someone had just been to visit him. He said, no, no. He says, it's not that. He says, you know, I, I just kind of imagined Jesus on that chair and I talked to him. The preacher is puzzled. So the man explained. He says, well, years ago I was struggling with prayer. And a, a friend just told me that prayer is, is as simple as talking to a friend. Just a good friend. So every day, I started pulling up a chair, imagining Jesus in the chair and talking to him. Some days later, the daughter called the preacher and told him that her father had died. She said, I left him in his room alone for a couple of hours, and when I got back to the room, I found that he was dead, but I noticed the strangest thing. His head was resting, not on his pillow, but on an empty chair beside his bed. You know what that old man had done? He was so in love with Jesus that he wanted his last moments on earth to be resting in the lap of his master, his Savior. That's the kind of relationship, personal relationship, we all should be striving for. That's the kind of relationship that Jesus desires with us. And when we stay at a distance, and God is over here, and, and we're over here, and God is kind of at arm's length, and God is, is never allowed to get into the nitty-gritty of our life and change our hearts, perhaps the only thing that could happen is a crisis of faith to wake us up, to realize God has so much more that he wants with us. I remember a moment in our life when we lost our second child, Joe, Joey. He had only lived about three weeks. 
and we had prayed through that whole three weeks because he was born early that he would survive. And I, I prayed, Jane and I prayed that, that every day that, you know, God was just going to do a miracle here, that God was going to change things. The doctors were saying, you know, he's probably not going to make it. This is, we just don't know what else to do. We don't know how to help him. And, and yet he's just kind of lingering on. And we thought, this day, today, it's, going to, it's just going to turn the corner. And God's going to show everybody what he can do. And then Joey died. What a crisis of faith it was for us to realize that God doesn't answer affirmatively for every answer. He doesn't say yes to everything we request. That sometimes the terrible things of this life do happen, and we are left wondering why. And I remember a couple days passed, and I was pretty stoic. I wasn't really very emotional about things. We had a lot of people supporting us, a lot of family, a church family in Florida. was just tremendous, and... Uh, it was, it was time for us to have a memorial service for our little boy. And before we went to that, I remember just feeling kind of numb. But I went to take a shower. And in that shower, suddenly it just hit me. I, I, I was like Jeff Streit's dad. I just started weeping. I started crying. And it all became more real for me. It all became part not just of my head. I knew what had happened, but my heart to realize God was still there. God was still with us. God was going to take us through this. And even though this terrible thing had happened in our life, that God had answers. God had meaning. God had something he was going to do from this. And, and since that day, we've seen ministry open up for, for different people that are going through maybe a you know, miscarriage or child very sick or loss of a child, whatever age that child may be. And ministry can happen because now we have some understanding and compassion for them that we would not have had before. Also, we have this girl sitting over here and her family, which we've never had if Joey had not died because we were going to stop it too. And about three and a half years later, we got Jenna. You know, God, God knows better than we do. And God knows what to do in our lives. And we need to build a relationship with him through these crises of faith that whatever may happen, he will carry us through that. And our faith will not be crushed. It will be made stronger. And our relationship with Jesus will be stronger. If you haven't come to that moment when you say from your knees, Lord, help me, Lord, save me. I hope that that moment will come soon, maybe even today. You can meet him one-on-one -on -one today. Even if you've been going to church for a long time, consider yourself a good person, a religious person. Have you ever met Jesus personally like that? Have you encountered him as your Lord and Savior? A few minutes, we're going to sing a song together called Oceans. Here are some of the lyrics from that song. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep. My faith will stand. O oh, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander. And my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Jesus says, I am yours, and you are mine. If you don't know what that means, my prayer for you is that some crisis of faith will lead you 
to a deeper, stronger, more profound relationship with Jesus than you've ever known. And it will change your life. It will change everything. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that uh, we have heard your word today. We have seen the example of the nobleman. And we have seen the crisis of faith that you brought him through, that you met him in. And that change that you have brought to his life through Jesus and he to even his whole family. Lord, as we've experienced you in our life, we know the difference that you make. We know that through the toughest realities and harshest times of this life, you never leave us. That you are there to strengthen and, and guide us and carry us through. And I know, Lord, that uh, these are not experiences that any of us would, would choose these crises, but that you use them to draw us close to you. Lord, I pray for anyone here today that does not know Jesus, that their hearts would be open to him and that they would be searching and seeking and desiring to be close to Jesus. May we realize that our faith is out there even in the deep waters where our feet cannot touch because you carry us and you're there for us. May you carry us out into the oceans of life, Lord, strengthening our faith day by day, moment by moment, year by year, that we would walk with you forever. Lord, bless us, each one, as uh, we are thinking about our own lives, our relationship with Jesus now. May our hearts be open, not worried about anyone else in this room today, but just talking with you and asking you, Lord, to show us the way for our life today to make whatever changes are needed in us. However painful that process may be, Lord, that we would be stronger and stronger in our faith and that Jesus would be praised. In his name I pray, amen. Would you sing with us, please? Let's stand together.